Then Martha heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house, which is very consistent already with what we know about Mary and Martha, and I want to touch on that. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. So evidently, Jesus had come up that winding road from Jericho, which is about a two-day journey walking. And evidently, they had some guys on the lookout because they'd been wanting him to come since they'd first sent the messenger. And when Martha heard that he was coming, she ran out to meet him. Mary continued to sit in the house. And all that we know of Mary and Martha on the other pages of Scripture is Martha busy moving around and Mary busy sitting at the feet of Jesus. So they're, they're just two different type of people. Thus, they're handling the situation in a totally different way. And I think there is a message in there for us. And so she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here is a very, very strong confession on the part of Martha that shows she has some really good theology about Jesus. And when she had said these things, she went away and called Mary and said, The teacher's calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. And you can imagine the turmoil in her head. Oh, he's probably wondering why I wasn't with Martha and why I'm back here sitting in the house and how come Martha was out there and wanted to see him and I wasn't. And this whole thing is just charged with the turmoil of emotion that's involved in the grief of losing a loved one. The whole passage, there's so much here. And so she comes out to meet him. And in verse 30, Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her. When they saw that Mary arose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It is a very, very touching passage. It is so human. One of the things I see here, just in passing, is that Jesus was on his way up to where the funeral would be, but he stayed back on purpose. And I believe that he wanted to meet privately with Mary and Martha. I believe that was his intention. That before they all got into the commotion of Jesus is here at the funeral, where things could get pretty well out of hand, very fast. He wanted to minister privately to these women in their grief. And that is always the priority. The priority when we are in the middle of a situation like this is we must get alone with Jesus and we must hear from Jesus because the emotions get so out of control, so out of control. And it's there in that place alone with Him that we are then enabled to go and to meet that situation with the grace of God upon our souls. Now, as you look at this passage, I want to kind of draw back and, and just tell us where we are right now in the passage. This passage has all the intensity of a life centered on Christ. It is full of intensity, as I have mentioned. When you live your life centered on Jesus Christ, it is the ultimate drama. It's beyond any movie you will ever see. It's beyond any play you will ever watch or attend. It is the ultimate drama because it's real and it's happening to you. 
And because you step into the spiritual realm when you make that commitment to truly follow Jesus Christ, you step into all of the dynamics of the war that broke out in heaven when Satan rebelled against God and drew one-third of the holy angels with him. And thus, that cosmic warfare continues and you become a part of it. And because the devil and his demons hate Jesus, they hate you. And because his forces are real, those forces are really felt in your life. And thus, with that dynamic and then the dynamic of the Holy Spirit filling you and blessing you and changing you and the Word of God working in your life, and then having friendships and seeing friends come to Christ, seeing friends reject Christ, and all the dynamics of working in the ministry for the Lord and all the costs you have to pay and so on, it is the ultimate drama. And these people on the pages of this passage are right in that drama. We're not dealing with flaky people here. We're dealing with the most committed people here. And thus there's lots of instruction here for us. There is always that tension that is caused by those who do Satan's work. And it has to be dealt with. It's amazing to me to see the extent that Satan will go to stop the work of God. What in your mind would be the extent that Satan would go to stop the work of God? You don't need to look very far in the gospel that we've been studying to realize that already by this point, the um, chief priests and the Pharisees have stirred up people to be aligned with them, and they have effectively and officially already several times tried to murder him, but now they've made it official. Now there is a publicly known mafia-style contract on his life. If we find him in public, we will kill him. And the Bible tells us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but that we wrestle with spiritual powers in high places. But the confusing thing, and the thing we tend to forget, is that Though the source of the warfare is not flesh and blood, the vehicles, the tools that are often used are distinctly flesh and blood and specifically flesh and blood. There is that tension here in this passage. If Jesus goes anywhere back near Jerusalem, he is walking back into a death threat and he's already had to deal with the disciples about that fear in their own hearts. There is that tension Further in this passage, there is the tension that's caused by the human condition of our Lord's disciples. We are in the end still human. No matter how close we get to Jesus, we see Mary and Martha and the one teaching about them and Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha, she's chosen the right thing at the right time right now. This is a time to sit and learn and to be close to me. But no matter how close we get to Jesus, we are still human. And thus subject to all the emotions, I would call it emotional chaos, that comes to us when we lose a loved one. And if you have lost a loved one in your life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have not, you will know what I'm talking about. There's no cookie cut answers you can give people that can only be aggravating at the time. There must be spirit-led behavior to go in tandem with what the Spirit of God is seeking to do to those that have been left behind, seeking to minister to them. And so the human condition causes the whole thing to become rather complex. And here we have these two sisters who so dearly, dearly love Jesus. And thus, to get the big picture... So much of what he does in this passage, from the moment that he gets the note or the verbal message from the messenger, to the time that he raises Lazarus from the dead, to the time that he raises from the dead himself after he has gone to the cross, so much of what is done is to minister to their need as human beings. And if you see it in that light, I guarantee you, you will read it differently. And it'll begin to minister to your own heart so much more. That's something that I've seen in looking at it this time myself. Then to take another look at it, if you look at the big picture here, so much of what is done here is for the disciples in their human condition and the difficulties that lie ahead for them. 
And the reason I think this is important is because for all of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary and Martha are gone. James and John and Andrew and Peter are gone. The disciples now are us. We are the ones. Thus, if we see Jesus doing very, very important and powerful things at this point in their lives, which will come to be a source of strength and support and foundational to what they will do in their ministries ahead, then we will understand that He's going to work the same way in our lives. Much of what God is doing now in your life is targeted toward a future time in your life when He will call you to some specific things and you will need to fall back on and build on what He's doing right now. And that time may be a while off. And generally it is. And thus, it's critical to take in what He's doing right now in your life as He did here because... Jesus knew, having worked with these disciples for this amount of time, almost three years, he knew their density. He knew their tendency to see so much, experience so much, and still be clueless. Do you remember him saying to the disciples at different times, not how much faith do you have, but where is your faith? How much do I have to do? How much do I have to teach you till you begin to respond back in faith? There are those times when the question is not how much do you have, but at one point it is where is your faith? Where do you put this stuff I give you? Where is your faith? Knowing their frailty, knowing their human condition, knowing that as he goes to the cross, that they are basically already fairly weak and confused in their faith, even though they've made some great confessions. Peter has said to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's a similar confession here from Martha. But knowing that when he goes to the cross and dies, that even though he has already told them repeatedly he would do it, and that he would rise the third day, He knows that even though they've heard it over and over and over, like so many of us sitting in sermons, we hear it over and over and over and over. And then a situation pops up in life and it's like we never heard it ever. Well, he knows that the disciples are like that. So knowing that and knowing that when he dies, they're going to see it as the worst possible ending to the greatest possible cause that was ever launched in the world. The worst possible ending. In other words, you hear of causes, you hear of gurus, you hear of teachers, but nothing more tragic than to see the display of power, to see the work of God, and then to see this same individual tortured and beaten and spit on and mocked and taken and killed and die in front of everybody. Nothing could be worse than that then the worst possible end to the best possible cause. He knows they'll see it that way. But he knows also on a personal level that they are going to see it because this is how we see everything first and foremost as it relates to us. How many here ever have looked at a group photo? Just do this. Who did you look for first in the photo? You see a group photo, if you have any clue that you might have been there, the first thing that the eyes are moving faster than normal and they're going like this and the brain is working, processing, boop, 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 lock in on sector 25, zoom in please, enlarge, 300 fold, boom, there you are. Ah, I like that picture. That's a good shot. Who took that? And if you do that process and you don't see yourself, you do not, it's all right. It's an okay picture. Not a very good group shot though. You know, because you're not in it. We tend to all take things first subjectively. How does this apply to me? So though he knows that they will see this as the worst possible ending to the best possible cause there ever was, the real issue is going to be how it affects each one of them personally. So that he knows they're going to see it as the worst ending, the worst ending to the greatest thing that ever happened in their life, which is going to generate a heartache on a level that has perhaps been unparalleled since or before in the human heart. Once you hold your 
finger here and turn to Proverbs 13. There's a scripture I want to show you that relates to this, speaks to this issue. Proverbs 13, 12. Proverbs 13, 12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart what? Sick. Sometimes we make plans to take a vacation or go for a drive or do something fun or go out to eat or whatever. And those plans are aborted suddenly and we, oh, you know, we get in a mood. And our heart is sick. Well, just imagine living for three years with Jesus Christ. Just imagine being a fisherman. And your whole life is going on the sea and catching fish and bringing them in and and working with them. They're stinky, they're smelly, they're slimy, they're scaly. You can tell I don't like fish. And that's your life. Imagine that's your life. But in a short period of time, you meet Jesus Christ and suddenly you get to walk around with God every day. And when you go to the grocery store, And you have a list, and you've got certain things to get, and you say, do you have this one certain thing? The master wants it. Well, who is the master? Well, he's God. I'm one of his assistants. That's the kind of life they had. Well, Jesus wants this. The time when they needed the stuff for the Passover, the room, he said, go looking for a man with a water pot on his head, and tell him the master wants it. The same with the cult, and so on. You know, that kind of thing, the donkey's cult. It was a special place. What would you give to be in that place? To live three years with Jesus Christ, sit around the campfire, and to stare in those eyes and ask any question you feel like asking. You see, and then, to see the display of His power, and then, to see Him taken, arrested, and they flee in fear. They all forsook Him, the Bible says. And to see Him tortured, and to see Him die... A shameful death. Not just a death. He's not taken out and shot. He dies with thieves. He dies the death of the worst kind of criminals. The most degrading death. He hangs naked in front of the whole world. That's the way they crucified you. The most degrading, shameful, awful end to the greatest thing that ever happened in their life. And he knows this is going to be a sorrow that is going to shoot through their souls and it's going to be real and agonizing. Therefore, much of what he does here with Lazarus, the timing, the circumstance, the way he does it, the number of days that Lazarus is in the tomb is geared toward their hearts and their minds because he is within days of the cross. You know, you look in your Bible at John and you flip through the chapters that are left and you think, oh, we still got a long way to the cross. No, we just have a long way to the end of John. John takes a lot of detail on these final days before the cross. He's within only a number of days, really. And he knows this is going to happen to them quick, so he puts it right here. You see, he knows what we need to prepare us for the storm that is coming. And thus, he does it for their sake. Can you turn your Bible to John 20? Let me show you something over there that just puts this all together. John 20. He knows they have faith. He knows they have kind of a hodgepodge theology. Their faith is sort of like wet cement. It hasn't really set up yet. He is wanting to prepare them for a moment in time when all of that wet cement of their imperfect faith can be suddenly turned into a solid concrete faith that is worth dying for. They have to transition from the place of being so afraid when they arrested him that they forsook him and fled and hid out. They have to somehow get from there to a rock-solid concrete faith that is worth dying for because he knew further they all would die for him. And thus... This is a setup to prepare them for that so they can look back after he has risen from the dead and remember what he did with Lazarus. Then he raised himself and be prepared to go out and preach the message of the resurrection and be prepared to preach it in such a way that if need be, if they face the kind of persecution he did, they will die for it. That is a massive change that has to take place, but he set it up in such a way that it could take place very quickly when the time came. Look at John 20, verse 6. You have John and Peter, and they're running down to the tomb on the resurrection morning. It says, Then Simon Peter came, following him. John was faster than Peter. And so they're racing to the tomb. And they get there. 
John doesn't go in. So Peter, though he's not as fast, he's still more boisterous. And they, John's just standing there like staring. And Peter's like, get out of my way. And he dashes right into the tomb. And so Peter went in and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now stop right there. This is a man who was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. This is a man who saw Lazarus hop out of the tomb because the claws were wound around him and underneath and in between the claws were these spices and ointments that would have effectively made it like when you plaster an arm that's broken so that to unwind it would be a tremendous thing because they said to the people watching when Lazarus was raised from the dead and he came out of the tomb, now loose him, unwind all of that off of him. And he knew what a job that was. So he has that fresh in his mind. So that at a glance he sees this perfectly wound cloth and he sees the napkin folded in place by itself and at a glance it tells him everything. At a glance it's one of those moments where all the lights go on and all the thoughts that have been floating are connected. And suddenly... He understands what's going on, and it says that in verse 8, Then the other disciple, John, who came to the tomb first, went in also. And look at these words. And he saw, and he believed. Believed what? Believed what he hadn't really been believing for so long. Believed what he had heard but hadn't registered. Believed in such a way that it came down from his head somewhere there in the back, down into his heart, and from that moment it changed his whole life. That's how he believed. He saw and believed, it says in verse 9, for as yet he did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Jesus' words being scripture. As John looks back, he sees him as scripture. But you see, he did know in his head. He had heard. Peter had a big argument with him about it. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise this third day. They had a big argument. It was a big scene one day as they were traveling around. So it was in here in the head. But it had completely unaffected his life. There was no effect whatsoever from all of that. Rich interaction with God himself in flesh. And suddenly he saw and he believed. For as yet he did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Psalm thirteen twelve. we read it, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And he ran into that tomb with a sick heart. And it says, But on the other hand, but when desire comes, it is as a tree of life. And suddenly he understood it all. Suddenly what God had put in motion since the time of Genesis, really put in motion from eternity past, Suddenly it all clicked and he understood the whole plan of redemption and Christ rising from the dead and his grief was changed in one moment to that that joy that becomes our strength and suddenly he is supercharged for the task ahead which is to spend the rest of his life preaching the message that when you die you will live again and that it's true and you don't have to live all your life in fear and that it's a free gift from God. So what is Jesus doing here in John 11? I take the time to do this for this reason. We can read through passages like this and make little um, random applications to our life and miss the whole flow of what is actually really going on. And if we miss the whole flow of what is actually really going on, we'll never get the intended impact that the writer had when he wrote it. And we'll just run around with little random applications that don't have a big, huge leverage on our lives. Listen, when it comes time for you to die, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you're going to be thinking about this right here. I guarantee you. When it is your time to die, I guarantee you, you're going to be thinking about this. You're going to be grabbing for it. You're going to be reaching for it in your heart and in your mind like you have never reached for anything in your life. This is the truth that we will die by, every one of us that know Jesus. And if you don't know him tonight, if you're just playing a religious thing with Jesus, if you don't really know him, you're going to reach for it and it won't be there. It's got to be here in your heart. Up until this moment in the life of Peter and John, it was up here in their head. It had no effect on them. 
But suddenly it all clicked. He is laying the foundation for their future life in the preaching of the gospel of hope. And he does it with power. And so we understand what's going on here. And thus we can apply it rightly in our lives. And then to read in the book of Acts in chapter 4 verse 33. What actually happened later it says in Acts 4.33. It says with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. With great power and great grace. Here are these guys that were so dense. Here are these guys that were so confused. All the while, Jesus is putting into their lives, putting into their lives, pouring into their lives, truth, teaching, truth, teaching, miracles, examples, teaching, miracles, power poured into their lives, and it's not affecting them. But Jesus knows that there's going to come a point in time when He's going to put it all together for them. And they will, if I could use athletic terms, they will pole vault to a higher level of faith and influence than they ever dreamed was possible for sinners saved by grace like themselves. And when we read in Acts 4.33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, we are seeing men who have pole vaulted to a higher level and are now doing what nobody, nobody ever thought any one of them can do, and they are all doing it. And they said, Behold, these are ignorant, these are unlearned men, that are doing these things and preaching this message. In fact, they have turned the world upside down. So forceful were they with the message that they really did turn the world upside down. The gospel of Jesus Christ changed the place of women in the world permanently. Until Jesus Christ, women in the world were nothing but things to their husband. No real rights whatsoever. Jesus changed all that. The whole thing of Effectively abortion, offering your baby to Moloch on the fire, the god Moloch and the pagan idolatries of the day. Those things were swept away by the power of the gospels. Those altars were torn down and the babies began to live because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could go on and on and on and on and on, but that message they shared and they did it in power and they were ignorant and unlearned men, but that's only from a worldly point of view. Because from another point of view, they'd been personally tutored by Jesus Christ. And though for a long time it seemed like none of them were really getting it, and they were just a bunch of bumbling guys, suddenly, at the appointed hour, they each one took their place in the line and they charged. And the world has never been the same since. And when one went down, two came behind to stand in their place. And when two went down, four came. And that's the way we have to see it. We have to take our place and stand in and take their message and go to the world with it. The other thing I see here is that this passage has all the intensity of Christ, just days of his cross. And so there is this whole feeling. Jerusalem is not that big of a place. And there is this whole feeling. Um, and the word has gone out. It's almost like they've put wanted posters everywhere. Wanted, dead or alive kind of thing. And it's Jesus' face on it. There's this whole gloom that's hanging over the city as to the contract they've put on in his life. And so what Jesus does is he comes right up to the city, very close. Bethany's within a couple miles, just a very short walk to the city. And he does the greatest miracle he ever did. And it's like a slingshot sending the message one last time right into the midst of these leaders. I am the Messiah. You are causing the nation to reject me. You will be held accountable for this before God. And the proof is I'm raising a man from the dead who has been in there four days, which means his body needs to be recreated to get him out of there alive. And it's proof that I am everything I said. And you will be held accountable for it. And it's his last shot. It's almost a shot across the bow from a distance because his public ministry is over. It ended the last time they tried to kill him. The last time they tried to kill him, what happened was this. Genesis 6.3 says that the Lord God said, My spirit will not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years, which is possibly a reference to the time it took Noah to build the ark because that's how long it took. He's got 120 years left on the earth and then they're all going to die. There you read, God will not strive forever. What happened with these men is they 
came to a point with Jesus that one murder plot after the next, that when they made it an official contract on his life, Jesus took that as an official decision on their part. We reject you. And he withdrew from them. And his public ministry at that point in time was over. And thus, this miracle with its attending message stands as a message to all those that reject Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. Can you turn in your Bible just back to John eight twenty three? He had told these men in John eight twenty three, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then they said to him, Who are you? As if he hadn't given them enough information to answer that question. And Jesus said to them very calmly, just what I have been saying from the beginning. I am everything I've ever said I was. And he seals it with raising Lazarus from the dead and then with his own resurrection. And we studied that on Easter, how they just turned their eyes away from it. So here's what happens. Jesus said you will die in your sin. Now here's the point I want to make from this. God works in your life. When you don't know Christ, God works graciously in your life to bring the gospel to your life. He does a work, it's often been called a pre-salvation work. He does a work where it's described in Hebrews as a tasting of the kingdom of God. You taste of the power of God. You taste of the sweetness of God, being with God's people. He plows your heart, is the way I like to look at it. And he does it in such a way that he can fairly say with all the holy angels as his witness that he did it in such a way to sufficiently impact your life that you could respond from your sinful condition easily and just come and embrace him and be saved. He does it to such a deep extent, to such a profound extent, to such a broad extent, to such a repeated extent that you should have come to Christ, whether you did or not. It's beyond fair what he does. That's what he was doing one last shot over to the Pharisees and the scribes and chief priests. One last deep plowing of the heart which they shrugged off what happens is he does it to the extent that if you don't come to him you will stand before him alone on the day that's called the great white throne judgment and the bible says that there will be books that will be open and you will be judged by the things that are written in the books can you imagine at that day, when these chief priests are called alone, not as a gang. You see, they were a gang. In every sense, they were a gang. They killed people. They were a vicious gang. When they stand alone and the books are open and the Bible says that all the deeds of your life, every single sin is going to be read out from the book. And you will be judged by the things that God has carefully recorded in the book. Can you imagine the terror and the horror that's going to shoot through them. In that moment, when it is read from the book, you sentence the Son of God to death. You ignore the resurrection of Lazarus. You sought to kill Lazarus after he was raised from the dead. You turned your eye to the healing of the blind man. You willfully just pushed away the healing of the paralyzed man of the pool of Bethesda. You heard his teaching. You heard him say that this temple will be taken down and three days it will rise again. You heard that. You saw him do it. You paid men money big money to tell a lie for the rest of their lives and spread it around the whole nation. You drug hundreds of thousands of souls with you into your destiny where you're going. Can you imagine the horror that's going to shoot through them emotionally at that moment? Let me tell you something. That horror, once it starts, will never end. That feeling, once it begins, of infinite, unbelievable horror of what they have done will begin and it will never end from that moment. And they will take that feeling with them through eternity. What I'm saying is this. God goes to such a great extent to save you, to show you, to reveal yourself to Him. That when you stand before Him, if you have rejected Him, it is so fair, it is even beyond fair to send you away to hell forever because of what He has done to keep you from going there. It has been said you have to fight your way every step of your life to even get into hell 
because the hound of heaven is always after you with His grace. And so I want to say to you right now, if you don't know Him, if you don't, quit playing games with Him and take your life and bring it to Him and confess your sins and let Him forgive you of everyone right now. You have no guarantee on how many days you have in this life. The only guarantee you can have is that if I know Him, I'm going to heaven when I die. And He's going to look at me and He's going to find a few things about my life that were done well because of His influence. And He's going to say, Oh, look at all this that I have to reward you for. Well done! And you're going to be thinking, Well done. I only did it because you prompted me so much. Well done! And then He's going to reward you. And that feeling of excitement, I made it! I made it! It's all behind me! You sure, Lord? Well done, I said. Enter into the joy of... You sure, Lord? Go! Woo! Gabriel, stand back. Here I come. That feeling's going to go on forever. And it's going to increase and increase and increase because I believe the reward issue in heaven is how much of the glory of God we are granted to contain and to burn brightly and to glow within us throughout eternity. And thus you see the importance of everything that's happening in this passage. Now just a few more things. I want to go back through where we went last time and I want to add a few thoughts. Jesus here came in his arrival to Bethany and it says he came to Bethany and he found in John eleven seventeen that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles away. And many of the Jews in John eleven nineteen, many of the Jews, so there's a big crowd there, had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Jesus is drawn here, as we've already seen by the plan of God and his love for these dear women. There were no demands. They didn't say, Lord, come, please, and do this or that. They simply said, Lord, behold, in verse 3, he whom you love is sick. So he came. He is drawn at this point in the midst of a traditional Jewish funeral. The scene here. In those days, they had actually paid mourners, people that were professionals. If you met them over lunch or something, they'd give your, their card to you, and the card would say, uh, you know, call me anytime, and I'll come and mourn for you. That was it. They were professionals, so they had learned how to weep and wail and throw dirt in the air and rip their garments, and they were pros. So at any funeral in those days, you'd hire some pros, and they'd come in. And the idea would be this, that if nobody had the sensitivity to grieve for this person, or maybe even sometimes if the person was such a vile individual that nobody could stand them and didn't like them and there was nothing but joy when they were gone, then you'd hire these guys and they'd come in and scream at the funeral. And it would be a big scene. So you'd have those kind of people, but... I believe that because of the character of Lazarus, because of the nearness, the friendship of Mary and Martha to Jesus, there was a great crowd there because of their love and they wanted to seriously comfort them. Now, here's where we can gain some instruction. People would come to this kind of a situation and they would plan to come and stay in the area for a week to comfort the family. A traditional Jewish funeral at that point in time lasted for a week. What they would do is they would bury the body immediately because it was hot and the nature of the climate and everything had begun to decay right away. They would bury the body immediately. So the burial would take place right away. But the rest of the week was filled with the mourning of the person who had passed away and the comforting of the family. So what happened is that Jesus came into this traditional setting and there is a big group of people there. What they did when they would have the funeral is there'd be a long procession to the tomb and it was always led in the front by women. And the reason for that is they felt that women had, because the women sinned first, that women had led the race into death and so they felt it was only proper that they should lead. And the women saw that as a place of honor to do that, that it was only right. And they would lead the procession and they'd get there and much like today there'd be a eulogy of the life. After they returned from the funeral service at the tomb, they would serve a sparse meal as a result of a rabbi who had instituted this. They would serve a sparse meal of hard-boiled eggs and lentils, 
And the idea was that the meal was designed to keep it at a level of the focus is on comforting these people and keep it from turning into a party. Because in the past what had happened is people began to compete with the meals they would bring. And they were turning it into this big lavish thing and it got so out of control that one of the rabbis said, Enough! Let's make an official meal and let's stick to it so that we can stick to the issue of comforting the people at hand. And that's what they did. So there was a great concern for one simple thing, that we are here to be compassionate to these people for a week. And that is what they did. So Jesus comes into the midst of that setting. And what I like about it is it's a traditional Jewish setting. It doesn't keep him from coming. And what we often tend to do as born-again Christians, if it has any element of traditional whatever background to it, we just stay away from it. We don't want to be involved. We won't go. We won't be a part of it. But Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus was willing to go into a place with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And Jesus is willing to go into a traditional setting and minister either one if there were people there. And the point really being that his people were there. And he wanted to get to them to minister to them. So he comes to Bethany and he encounters a faith that has limits to space and time in Martha in verse 20. She had already limited him. She continued to limit him. We've already seen all that. What I want to share with you right now, this is the real thing I want you to see. Martha is grieving. Her brother has died. And she is here and Jesus encounters the very real turmoil of bereavement. This is a woman who believes in God. This is a woman who is a personal friend of Jesus Christ. And she's in full-blown turmoil. You know why? Because of that human condition. Just because we're Christians and just because we know the Lord doesn't mean that when great tragedy strikes, there is going to be real turmoil and real grief. And Martha is right in the middle of it. What I love is the sensitivity of Jesus to that. You see, he ministers to Martha, who is grieving, I want to say, as Martha. She's not Mary. She's Martha. We all handle these things differently, don't we? Every one of us. And so here we read in John eleven twenty. Then Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went out and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. So there's the distinction in the two. Here they are, and this is how they're dealing with it, both different. In a few verses, Mary, we find out, and we read it, she comes and she gets up quickly and goes out to him. I venture to say his encounter with Mary was more contemplative, just a whole different kind of encounter because she was a different kind of person. She came from sitting. Martha heard and came running. So I imagine his encounter with Martha, and he is there to minister to her in her turmoil, was totally different than that with Mary. We each have our own unique relationship with the Lord. Please understand this. Because in these times when a loved one is lost, every member of the family is going to be reacting differently. One is going to be really cool and calm and the other is going to be total chaos. And then another will be just frozen. They can't do anything. There's no help for anything. They can't deal with it. They can't cope. We're all different. But Jesus wants to meet us all right where we are. He met Martha right where she was. Can you picture Martha? She hears he's coming and she gets up and she runs. Do you ever think about the look she must have had on her face? Have you ever thought about how her mind must have been such a washing machine of intense emotional thought? I mean, why didn't he come? And yet he's here. Oh, I'm so glad he's here, but why didn't he? It's just boing, boing, boing. And you can see her crying. Her brother's gone, but she's crying, Jesus is here. But, but Jesus is here, but her brother's gone. It's just turmoil. And she's running, and you can just see her her desperation, and it's almost like she's just crying because he's here. Everything will be okay now, he's here. Somehow I'll be able to cope because he's here. I don't know if you've ever looked at it like that, but here she is running to him, and he sees this, and he is ready to minister. And he comes to her in deep, humble sensitivity to her need. I say that because he is God. He's not just a friend. He happens to also be God. And he's moving through this world on a time clock and a schedule. And he has so much to do that the Father has given him to do. But what he does is he just basically turns to minister to her. He comes up from Jericho. He humbly, sensitively comes to her. 
In other words, what I want you to see here is that Jesus wasn't so locked into his mission that he couldn't stop to help somebody in need. Brethren, we are all too susceptible to getting so locked into our groove that we just can't turn aside and take a moment, take a day, whatever, to minister to someone in need. Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't so locked into his mission that he couldn't break away. Jesus never had a don't bother me attitude. Jesus was never like some hot shots who get a little ministry under their belt and start using this phrase, I'm too busy. I hate that phrase. We have told our assistants, the people on staff, never use that phrase with God's people. So please report to me if they do, would you? Feel free to tell on them. I'm too busy. They don't get the message of Jesus. I'm too busy. No, he didn't have that and neither should we. He didn't go through the world saying, don't bother me, I have things to accomplish. He humbly moved through life sensitive to the needs of people. That is why he came to Mary and Martha and Bethany. And he ministers to Martha as Martha, as who she is. He ministers to her as a person who is caught in, if I could say it this way, the only if syndrome. If only you had come. I have it all figured out. If you had come, it would have been all right. If only, if only, if only. There is, there was a solution and you missed it. She took Jesus and she boxed him down into her box. And she limited God. You know what Martha and Mary both really needed was rather than the if if only syndrome, they both needed the whatever you want syndrome attitude. We have to all get over to that. We have to get off this thing of Lord if only you would have. If only you would have. And we need to start saying, Lord, whatever you want. Lord, you're here. What is it that you have? What do you want? Why did you delay? You must have a plan. I know you, Lord. It must be a good one. It must be really good because this is really bad. Lord, whatever you want. If she would have been like that, she would have had a lot more peace. All of them would because Jesus came to minister to comfort and we must trust him. One last thing as I see this. She has this great theology. She says, Lord, I know that whatever you ask the Father, he will give you. That is a tremendous theology. And she actually used a a Greek term that says, I know that as an inferior to a superior, if you ask God the Father, the superior, that's bound in the word ask, he will answer you. What she's really saying is, I understand that in your humility as a man, you've come off your throne as God, you have voluntarily laid aside your attributes, and you have submitted all of your attributes as God to the will of the Father. You're all God, but you're all submitted to the work of the Father. And I know that whatever you ask, because you do always those things that please Him, He'll do whatever you want. That's a profound theology. And she says, and I know you are the Christ. But you know something? Even with that much good theology, she is still in turmoil. And I want to say to you today, no matter how much you've learned, no matter how much you understand about Christ, if you have a loved one next to you who dies, you're going to be in some degree of turmoil. And it's not going to be easy. But Jesus will be faithful to come to you. As he turned aside from working out the whole plan of redemption, and he's only days from the cross, to minister to two women that were his friends. He will come to you. And when he came to her, he gave a great revelation. He said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. You know how monumental that was? If you will look in your Old Testament, here's what you'll find concerning life after death. You'll find a few good statements, but not a lot. And even those statements are not all that informative. So that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life, And I'm going to prove right now what I'm saying, that I have that power, and I will soon prove it by raising myself from the dead. He took the knowledge they have of life after death, and he just blew it wide open to where anybody can take hold of that and understand, if I believe in Jesus, I'm going straight to heaven when I die. Job said, if a man dies, this is in his agony, he says, if a man dies, will he live again? He just tosses it out there and goes on mourning over his condition. Later, however, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives 
And I will stand with him in that latter day. I know that in my flesh I will see God. A very profound statement. Seeing as how Jesus, when he rose from the dead, and they thought he was a spirit, he says, listen, I'm not just a spirit. A spirit doesn't have, what did he say? Flesh and bone. So when Job says, I know my flesh, I'll see God. That's a profound reality for a man who's sitting there on the edge of death, especially. It's probably a good one. That's the first big one we have in the Bible. The next one comes when... It's a prophecy. David says, He will not suffer my soul to see corruption and so on. It's a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The next one comes with Daniel when he has all of his prophecy of the last days and heaven and God on his throne and all of that. That's about it in the Old Testament. When Jesus stands up in front of everybody with a three-year history of miracles and deliverance from demon power over demon spirits, raising people now from the dead, and the message that he had, and he said, Look, everybody, with all I've said and all I've done and all I've proven of the power that I have, and as I raise this man out of this tomb, this is what I want you to know is happening. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. In other words, if you believe in me, death isn't going to be any big deal. Understand, death will be for you really the beginning of what will be for you real life. Because folks down here, as C.S. Lewis said, these are nothing but the shadow lands. And the day we die is when the light of God dawns and we are going to really begin to live Do you know Jesus has the resurrection and the life? If you don't, give your life to Him right now. Ask Him to forgive you for your sins right now. You cannot play Russian roulette with your life. It's in His hands and so is the time you're going to die. And you better be ready every day and hour that you take a breath because you may go without warning. And it is here that you decide where you're going to go. And Jesus has given you enough revelation to enable you to do it there is no reason you cannot and he will hold you accountable forever if you refuse so as we pray now just let this be a time of you giving your soul to Christ and then resting in him and being ready for whatever he wants to do in your life let's pray Father we thank you for Jesus we thank you Lord Jesus that you are the resurrection and the life we thank you Lord that Though we have lived all our lives in the fear of death, Lord Jesus, you have taken that fear of death out of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you have gone into death and come out the other side and shown us that we will, when we die, live again. We thank you, Lord, that if we are afflicted as Job was and we end up even dying, we will know a lot more than he did. We have in front of us looked at this day, Jesus, your words, your actions, and we now know... For sure, we will live again and we will live with you. Lord, we ask now that by your grace and the work of your Spirit in our lives, we would live with you here and now until that hour. And that when we go to be with you, we can go in triumph and victory and glory and hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant. So we commit our lives to you, Lord. We put them into your hands and we ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.